0: The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. My name is James Carter. I'm a professor of history at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, and I'm really excited to be here in New York today to talk with Scott Tong. Um, We're going to have a few minutes to chat about his new book, A Village with My Name, A Family History of China's Opening to the World. So welcome, Scott.
1: Great to be here, Jay. Thank you.
0: Let me start by by looking at the book, which is a number of things I want to get into, mm-hmm. but, but one in particular is I noticed you structured it with these three great events. So you have a great opening, um, a great interruption, and then the great resumption. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. what were you trying to get at with those, and how did that play into the story you were trying to tell?
1: I, I think the reason I kind of framed it in these three periods was, I think because of a mistake i made when i when i got to china when i went to report and i think a lot of people run into this you i thought china was kind of this instant story and and so many people inside china were talking about how kind of the beginning of everything was reform and opening as if the story started then or some a few people started the story when when the uh, when the communist party came but not a lot kind of connecting the longer history with where china is today so as I researched uh, my own family, but also talked to historians and economic historians, I think an undertold story is one where, in the early 20th century, you know there were a lot of uh, kind of outward- looking Chinese nationals, Chinese people who who kind of went out and connected with the ideas of the outside world, kind of this enlightenment generation. And so I think of that as an earlier opening uh, compared to Compared to the more recent opening here, and then in between uh, was a period when, of course, China closed its doors and in an interruption to this broader process. So, as I think about it, the where China is today is is just certainly to some degree a communist party story, but um, uh, much of the roots go, m- many of the roots kind of precede that period in time.
0: Well, that's something that I, as a historian. I'm always looking back to the past all the Mm -hmm. time. And so that's something I found really refreshing in the book because you're right, it's all about reform and opening. And my students often, and I think just people in general, to the extent they think about China today, they think about that China opened sometime in the last 20, 30, 40 years. And you're really putting that back in the 19th or early 20th century.
1: Yeah, you know, I I didn't have a satisfactory basic grasp of, I think, the longer story after spending several years in China. so I think history is a, it's a it's a challenging concept in China for to get many people to talk much about. And of course, you know there is the government's version of history and and as I learned researching this book and history can be physically a gated enterprise. <laughs> you have to be allowed into the gate and sometimes you have certain papers. so it's it's less easy to access uh, the longer view uh, for someone like me.
0: So So you're right, uh, and doing history in China is a is trying to get access. I mean, that's really a big part of the story. Can you tell me a little bit about about that? Like, how did you decide that you wanted to get access to that, that secret kind of off limits history? And then, how did you how'd you fare?
1: Well, I uh, unevenly. <laughs> I I fared um, had a great stroke of luck when I came across just uh, through some of my relatives, my maternal grandmother's letters. So, my mom's mom. Uh, was educated by American missionaries, kind of of middle-of-nowhere China starting in 1911. And it turns out she kept all the letters that that they wrote to her. So they kind of corresponded throughout most of her adult life. And the letters that she wrote to her American teachers, these teachers became somewhat celebrated literacy uh, promoters in, in their lifetimes, and all of their letters have been kept in archives in U.S. universities. So some of my grandmother's letters to her teacher are at Boston University, and another big set are Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania, sure. so being able to put that together was this treasure of a record of her life. A grandmother, you know, I barely met. I met her when I was two. Um, in other cases, uh, uh, I, I struck out. My This grandmother's husband, so my maternal grandfather, was a political prisoner, and when I went back, I actually did did find out dates when he was arrested and and we found out um, his, uh, his, his, his sentence and we, what he was convicted of tried to find out where he went as a political prisoner to the labor camp where he we presume he spent the last years of his life and there I had a lot of help a lot of people actually who were uh, motivated to help me try to find some documents and, and paperwork in there Uh, didn't find anything
0: specific to him so you know a few wins here and there well and this is this is the grandfather carlton's son yes is that that the name he went by Mm so um and that was and and fair warning to listeners if you haven't read the book yet there there are spoilers here um but i mean that is one of the things in the in reading the book and you found out that your so your grandfather had been arrested and convicted and sentenced as a as a traitor as a Mm -hmm. collaborator yeah um and i'm I mean, I think a lot of people would, would really struggle with learning that. So I'm wondering how did how did that make you feel as you're finding it finding it out? But also, how did that resonate throughout the rest of your your family? I mean, that must have been. I'm sure that people had challenging reactions to that to that discovery.
1: Very, very challenging for me to find out uh, when.
0: As and maybe want you just tell us sure. like what so what was he convicted oh, of? Oh, sure. Yes. Okay.
1: Out? So my my grandfather. Um, worked for a couple of years, in, starting in 1940, for the, for the Japanese occupation of China during World War II. So there was you know, what is widely described as the, uh, the puppet government in central China. And in my grandfather's hometown, uh, home city of Wuhan, he returned there and worked for a couple years for this government and, and was arrested and convicted years later of being a collaborator, uh, a traitor for the Japanese occupation. First time I heard this, first time I really remembered as an adult knowing this information, my, mo- my mother didn't tell me, her sister, my aunt told me this. And it was it was a viscerally, you know, it, w- it was hard to, to process at the start. And this and, is before you, know, you were writing the book. This is before, this. when okay. I first started kind of poking around, first started poking around and asking people about the story. How come this, my grandfather has never been mentioned at the table, ever? And that's when the conversation began And I just wanted to know more of the story. And interestingly, throughout the process, his daughter, my mother's kind of outlook on all of this really changed. Hmm. So I traveled with her to China and we found, uh, you know, her ancestral villages. And in the process of trying to track down some of this information at the outset, my mother said, you know, I don't think this should go in the book. You know, this, uh, you know, I I would like to have a little editorial control over over what, what goes in it. Um and I said okay. Um and we kept finding out information. And and as we learn more about his particular life, the you know, this very kind of moralistic way of thinking about history became a lot grayer. We learned that he was part of the division that was feeding the people who were there. Mm-hmm. So the story gets a little more gray. He got to go home and uh and take care of his mother who was a widow and his sister-in-law who was a widow. So some family obligation story gets a little more gray after that. We learned that in you know in the fog of war, in in many cases you you know you you pick a side and if you pick the winning side you're a partner. And if you pick the losing side you're a stooge. So yeah. um thinking this through and speaking to to people who've kind of examined this a little more dispassion- dispassionately, it kind of removes this um, kind of the moral uh, 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 overtone, you know, covering of this. Um, and, and then when we thought of, you know, when you think about the concept of, of whether the, you know, whatever the crime was, whether the punishment kind of fits it, for a whole generation of people who were, were convicted of these crimes, they they... Most of them died. Most of them did not return from the labor camps and the end end of their lives were presumably uh, horrific. So as we learn more information, uh, I I spoke to my mother again and she said, you know, this is this is something a lot of Chinese families have in their past. They probably haven't dealt with it. You know, the shame is the great silencer and Mm -hmm. people probably don't talk about it. But it's actually very important to know and to to think through. uh, And you should you should put it in the book.
0: Wow. So she, and so in the end, she she gave her blessing to. She the, did.
1: To that. Uh, very surprising, but as I think about it, um, and you know, my parents have been in the states for for more than fifty years, and I think we here, you know, we value humanity and forgiveness and um, uh, closure, and and these and these, uh, these are the kinds of things that we we value, I think, in society. It doesn't really travel necessarily to yeah. a Chinese, uh, to a Chinese society, but in the end, she said, "This is a story that is, um, you know, that should be told, and people should hear it."
0: Well, I was really struck as I was as reading the story, and, and I mean, both your story and his story, because one thing passing about the book is that it's it's both. It's a story of you as the author uncovering uh-huh. your subject, yeah. but the one thing I was. I w- was reminded of was a, a quotation by, by Vaclav Havel, the, you know, the former president of, of Czechoslovakia and the Czech Republic, mm-hmm. who talked about collaboration. And he would talk about the idea that we often presume that there is a, a bright line that divides collaborators from resistors. And the way Havel put it was that that line doesn't separate people, but it, it divides them internally. Um, so it's actually a line that runs through people not mm. between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so everybody who lives in that kind of society is making a choice as to how they're going to live and what they're going to do. And And I thought you wrote very compellingly about the, the choices that weren't, they weren't uh, pretend or, or straw man kind of choices. Like you had to decide how to live your life.
1: And, and, and as I read more about occupation in China and in Europe, you know, some of these occupations... People didn't know how long they were going to go, and in, sure. in the case of the Japanese occupation of China, the Americans hadn't entered the war yet. This could have been a very long period of. This could have been a very long period of, occupation and stalemate, uh, in and so people needed to to make very practical, you know, far more practical decisions than ethical and moral decisions to try to figure out how to uh, how to how to survive in this in this period. So. Um, You know, as you say, I I like the way I like the quote you just read. That this is something that these are difficult decisions that people are trying to make. They're trying to live day to day, and also um, not knowing how things are going to end. What I found fascinating in my research was, um, well, both right, both the uh, the government on mainland China and the uh, the Guomindang government. Uh, that went to Taiwan. right? Both of them staked their legitimacy on, mm-hmm. we, on, on the framing on the story that we defeated the Japanese. Um, so neither of those stories really leave space for any other reading of history. But what I find interesting was uh, one, of the, one of the women involved in this in this regime, the, the widow of uh, a notorious collaborator, lead collaborator, mm-hmm. Wang Jingwei, when she was on trial on the show trial um, at the end of world war II, what was interesting is first of all she didn't take it lying down and she screamed at the you know her uh, at the judges in the courtroom and, and said well you know which of us in this room fed the people and took care of the folks during the occupation and which of us were the cowards who fled to southwestern china and uh, uh, you know, kind of sat out the war. Um, Completely
0: turned it on its head. She she did, narrative.
1: and this is a, this is obviously the main defense of the folks who collaborated. But what was really interesting is is that re- she received this great ovation from the people who were in the wow. courtroom. So something about the time, uh, in real time, is a little different than uh, th- than than it might be with you know, the winners get to write history. And perhaps before the winners got to write history, it was a lot more complicated than it might look now.
0: Well, actually, let me use that as a segue because we, we only have a couple of minutes yeah. left. Um, and so when you're talking about what it looks like now, I mean, you've been a reporter, you, you know, you worked in Shanghai for a long time, but you've, you've covered China. Um, how did the process of writing this book change the way that you think about China today? Well, I think the... Having a little bit of critical
1: distance from China has allowed me to see an important view of where China is today, and that is the, the roots of the story are are somewhat global roots, global international roots. That these you know these these kind of leading ideas of modernity were were kind of received and sprinkled on Chinese soil a long time ago. Uh, so it is not exactly, you know, built by the outsiders and not exactly built by the insiders either, but this kind of intera- interactive, you know, this, this cultural hybrid generation is an important part, I think, in this Chinese story today. Another, I think, big takeaway uh, from this is when... Uh, another big takeaway from this, I think, is when China's doors were open to the world... Um, people thrived people had opportunities and and it was closed we know that, that enough of the historical record that that the that the fate of the people and the government were not good so um, you know I think right now with this current government in China there are questions about how open it's going to continue to be to foreign ideas foreign companies foreign competition and um, and I think the Chinese people know, and I think the Chinese leadership knows that, at least in history, when they've closed when they've closed their doors too much, uh, they know what's happened. And I think that's an important lesson to to draw. One last takeaway I think is you know throughout history um, there's been this continu- there's been this question that Chinese people and Chinese leaders have wrestled with is, is how to be modern and how to be Chinese at the mm-hmm. same time. Um, that's the story throughout my, my family story, you know, going back four or five generations, even today, to my cousin who lives in China today. He's still wrestling with it. I think the Chinese people are still wrestling with it. And I think the Chinese government is wrestling with it, too, right? It, it wants to have a, a Chinese story to tell the world. And at the same time, it really needs the world. And it's learned that through history.
0: Well, I think that's well put, and I, I would add to it that China's not the only country now that's struggling with how to think about questions of interconnectivity and globalism and cutting oneself off versus embracing other nations.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, we we see drawbridges being raised around the world, and, and, and the, we don't exactly know where this is going to go, but we certainly have learned a lot of lessons from history.
0: Well, we are near the end of our time, so um, I want to thank Scott Tong. Scott is your um, marketplace cor- correspondent still, correct, even though you're not based in Shanghai? That's right. I'm back in, uh, in Washington. Okay. Well, well, good luck with that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but thank you, everyone, for listening. It's been my pleasure to talk with Scott Tong. And again, the book is called A Village With My Name, A Family History of China's Opening to the World. I'm James Carter, and thanks very much for listening to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations podcast.